there is a story toward the very beginning of the Talmud where a famous rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, goes to visit another famous rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, and he finds him sitting on the floor weeping. And at first, Rabbi Yochanan does what many of us do when we think we know someone well, and we can just offer mental reframes that might make it better. You know, so he says, are you crying because you're poor? Don't worry, not everybody can be rich. Are you crying because you're, you haven't learned enough Torah? And he says, you know, we all just do what we can. And of course, this isn't helping. And so when he finally shuts up long enough for Rabbi Eliezer to speak, what he says is, I'm crying because of all of the beauty that's going to pass into dust. And Rabbi Yochanan thinks about this for a moment, and he says, For this, it is certainly appropriate to weep. And the two of them sat on the floor and wept. I've had many Rabbi Eliezer moments this year. When Serena Williams quit tennis when I listened to the podcast on the daily about Serena Williams quitting tennis. Uh, in the curtain call for, wait for it, Frozen the Musical, which was the first Broadway in Chicago show I went to with my children since COVID started. Um, but I'm thinking about a particular moment uh, this past winter in 2021. My family decided to take a road trip to Nashville, Tennessee at the, during the height of Omicron. So we didn't want to get on a plane. We thought we'd get in the car and drive somewhere south, like eight hours south. Surely it will be warmer there. Um, joke was on us. But I was driving and it's cornfields as far as the eye can see. And then I suddenly look up and I see a windmill this like big, beautiful, steel-bladed windmill. And then I look out and it's windmills as far as the eye can see. And I think to myself, Indiana is part of the solution to climate change for a fleeting moment before I burst into tears. And what comes out of my mouth is, it's not enough. It's not enough. Me composting isn't enough. And these windmills aren't enough. And me biking my children to school isn't enough. And nothing's going to be enough. It's all going to be too little, too late. And our children are going to grow up in a hellscape. And Henry, my husband, is sitting right there next to me. Sort of. You know, and like, like we do for our kids when they're crying about something totally understandable that we can't fix. He lets me cry. Over this, it's certainly appropriate to weep. The shofar that we're going to hear a hundred times tomorrow embodies many things. It embodies a shout, a battle cry. It is an alarm clock waking us up out of the slumber that we walk through our lives in. But it is also the sound, the wailing sobs of heartbreak. Heartbreak. To be heartbroken is to have invested yourself in a present whose future you realize is dust. To be heartbroken is to take the picture in a frame that you've spent a long time looking at with love and expectation, maybe months, maybe years, maybe a lifetime, and to see that picture smashed on the ground. To be heartbroken is to be in the world as it is and to feel inside of yourself the world that could be, the world that could have been, if only, and to feel the gaping chasm 
between them and to doubt very, very deeply that that chasm will ever be bridged. It's an all-consuming emotion. Heartbreak. And as much as Rosh Hashanah comes to bring the optimistic possibility of renewal for all of us in this new year and for our world, Hayom Harat Olam, I said it earlier, it's true. It does that. This holiday also comes as a space to hold us in heartbreak and to help us navigate it together and to find our way back toward hope. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Because whether you cried this year or felt rage or simply shook your head incredulously listening to or reading the news, whether it was another mass shooting, this time children, this time close to home, or the rolling back of women's rights or of trans people's rights or floods or wildfires or the glacially slow movement of our government to mitigate climate change or the repeated assaults on our democracy itself, let alone the disappointments and losses and breakups and diagnoses that have happened in each one of our own lives. For this and for so much else that we have confronted this year, it is certainly appropriate to weep. Woo! <laughs> I didn't take crying into account when I timed this beforehand. God knows this feeling too. In the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Torah, God creates human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, the most magnificent creature on this planet, just lower than the angels. We are entrusted by the master of the universe, the creator, to care for this glorious place called Earth. In chapter one of the Torah, God gives humanity a charge to tend and to guard the Earth, and by the end of that first Parsha in the Torah, these human reflections of the divine have so desecrated the world that they were handed. They have disobeyed. They have committed murder. They have figured out every ruse and way of cheating their neighbors and getting ahead. God feels regret. The text says, God regretted creating the human being on earth and felt sad in God's heart. God was heartbroken. So it turns out human beings have been disappointing each other and God from the literal beginning of time. And I know it feels right now like there is something more dire, more urgent about this moment than ever before. But spiritually speaking, we are dealing with something very familiar, an eternal, essential human experience, and one that our ancestors wrote about, and one that moved them to create the traditions that we have today, that we are practicing in this moment, whose whole purpose might just be to give us tools for living in a world that breaks your heart. And I know that that might sound exaggerated, like surely the entirety of our tradition must be about something more than mitigating heartbreak. But hear me out. What does heartbreak do to us? It makes us 
want to lie in bed forever. It makes you think that the way things are right now is how they will always be, that things could never change, that anyone who thinks that they will is naive or misinformed or stupid. It makes you think that the loneliness or sadness or despondency you feel at the state of the world is both justified and permanent. In which case, why bother doing anything differently? In which case, why bother doing anything? But the Jewish story from the beginning, including our mythic history stretching all the way back, well, to God and then Noah and then Abraham, is the opposite response. It's a story of resourcefulness and creativity in the face of heartbreak. When Pharaoh decreed that he would throw all of the newborn baby boys into the Nile, the Midrash tells us that Israelite couples stopped having sex. They didn't want to risk the possibility of their child meeting such an inhumane fate. The world seemed an impossibly dark and inhumane and inhospitable place to imagine bringing children into. And I have heard from you, from people in our own community this year, who have written to me and said, given the circumstance we know that we are headed towards, that all signs and science tell us is but a few decades away and that we are already seeing in real time in the present moment, the world seems an impossibly dark and inhospitable place to imagine bringing children into. How can we justify bringing new life into this world? How could it be anything other than an exercise in heartbreak? So there's this little girl, the Midrash says, Miriam. And she says to her parents, Amram and Yocheved, your decree is worse than Pharaoh's. Pharaoh doomed only the baby boys, but you, my parents, foreclose any possibility of any child of any gender. Perhaps our savior will be a girl. Who knows? Anything is possible. You could choose to create possibilities or you could choose to close the door on possibilities. Be brave, she says. Take a risk. And her parents listen to her. And nine months later, they give birth to a little baby boy named Moses. And his savior was, in fact, a woman. Many women in this story. The midwives who broke the law and didn't enforce Pharaoh's decree. His own mother who nursed him and then sent him down the Nile. His sister who watched over him. And then, of course, in a surprising plot twist that we should not take for granted, Pharaoh's own daughter who reaches into the water and takes a risk on the child of her enemy, a slave child. And all of this and a combination of holy audacity and bravery and civil disobedience and community organizing and collective vision and a little divine grace sprinkled in there for good measure, all of that created a way where there had been no way. And Miriam, in the depths of darkness and in a heartbreaking world, believed and preached, starting with her own family, that things could be different and that rather than waiting for that time to come, people should start living that way now. And she paved the way for the future that no one could yet see, but that she suspected might be possible. And I think about those rabbis who penned that midrash, who in the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70, 
and the forced dispersion of the Jewish people all over the world, how these rabbis, in the midst of national decline, envisioned and planned for us to be here today. They envisioned and planned for people to survive against all odds. And they did that by creating new rituals and festivals and fasts and feasts and ceremonies and texts for a new generation of Jewish people that they hoped and prayed would exist. But they had no guarantees. All evidence suggested that that was actually a ridiculous thing to hope for and even more ridiculous thing to waste their time planning for. Most Jews at that time responded to the destruction of the temple, the way that most people respond to heartbreak, which is to distance and distract themselves from the source of that pain, to dissociate from Judaism. If, after all, God's home had been the temple, and clearly God had left the building because the temple was destroyed, so God had abandoned the Jewish people in the understanding of most of them. And with that heartbreaking interpretation of the facts before them, most Jews opted out, joined local Roman pagan cults, and simply faded out of the Jewish story. They did what Rabbi B'nai Lappi calls going option two, just turning around and walking the other way in the face of heartbreak. And the fact that we are here tonight celebrating anything at all is a tribute to the spiritual audacity and the intellectual creativity and the countercultural instincts of those rabbis and their partners and their families and their students and everyone else who was hopeful enough to go along with them even when everyone else around them was giving up. And every time I stand under the chuppah with a couple and prepare to sing the seven blessings, the Sheva Brachot, I think about those rabbis who created that ceremony. Imagining that one day there might be Jews who would fall in love and get married somewhere in the world. And this idea to them was like putting a spiritual brick in the edifice of a rebuilt Jerusalem, even as the Jerusalem they knew had been reduced to a pile of stones. And if you go to a wedding, a Jewish wedding today, you might not catch that this deeply joyful ceremony and celebration of the power of love was constructed against the backdrop of abject heartbreak. And I think there's something for us in that tonight in those seven blessings as we enter this new year. So this is what they are. The first blessing, you raise a glass and you bless wine, reminding us to find joy wherever we are. L'chaim. The second blessing reminds us that everything in the world reverberates with God's glory. Sort of like Rabbi Stephen was saying earlier, that second blessing is a reminder that even as things seem to be falling apart, we are not separate from everything as we might feel or as it might seem, but we are deeply and inextricably and lovingly bound up with creation. And all of that radiates God's love in every incredulous, bothered breath we take. For the rabbis who wrote these blessings to assert that was a theological reframe that had the power to change everything. Because in their vision of the future, God was not limited to a particular time and place in a temple in Jerusalem, but rather God would be present with us wherever we are in our joy and in our brokenness and in the brokenness of the world around us and in us as we piece it back together. The third and fourth blessings celebrate the creation of the individual human being. 
the infinite creative potential of each person. And the fifth blessing says that anybody who has ever felt bereft or depressed need only look at these two souls under this chuppah who have found each other against all odds and that this in and of itself is cause for hope and that for this triumph, Zion itself rejoices. The sixth blessing calls back to the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, before humanity broke God's heart, when we still lived in balance with the earth and with each other. I believe the rabbis in that sixth blessing were saying, you can take humanity out of the Garden of Eden, but you can't take the Garden of Eden out of us. And it's the body memory of what that felt like and smelled like and tasted like for us to be in harmony with nature and with our true nature that reminds us how badly we need each other to get back into balance. And we can't do it alone. And that's why we say that blessing under the chuppah. And by the seventh blessing, the rabbis have imagined nothing less than the messianic redemption of the world, embodied by people singing and dancing and celebrating in the streets of a rebuilt Jerusalem and the world that it represents because it's been rebuilt by love. That's the Jewish wedding ceremony. That's the vision. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) And at every wedding, I think of the dreams this couple holds for a home, for health, for children, for jobs, for the lives they imagine. And I know that at some point their hearts will be broken. And yet we stand under the chuppah anyway, and we dream, and we break a glass for the unredeemed world that we still live in. And they kiss, and we cry, and we all shout mazel tov, and then we dance like the world might end tomorrow. And I know that each one of us comes here tonight with our own tears, and our own dreams, and our own heartbreak, and it would be false, a distraction to focus on only the joyful noise of the shofar. I know this year, for many, the shofar is heartbreak, is pain and disappointment. And our tradition doesn't call for distraction and dissociation and distance in the face of heartbreak, even though that is what any normal person would do. Our tradition asks us to bring our open hearts, our open, broken hearts, with us. Because as we've sung before, there's a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. Our broken hearts tell us what we love and what moves us and what motivates us and what helps us get out of bed in the morning. Our broken hearts remind us that we're alive. And as long as that's true, tears may flow at night. But as the psalmist writes, joy comes in the morning. Rabbi Yochanan visited many sad, sick people, as it turns out. And the Talmud is full of stories of him going to people and asking them about their suffering and listening and then saying, give me your hand. And they'd give him their hand and he would raise them up. We can sit on the floor and cry together, but we also need each other to pick us up off the floor too. Love is the building block of the rebuilt Jerusalem, according to the sages, because love is social. Not just romantic love, of course. All love is social. It is about us not distracting ourselves from this world that breaks our hearts, but investing ourselves in it even more, falling more deeply in love with it. Not just dreaming dreams in heartbreak, but building and minion making and ideating and campaigning and organizing and donating and protesting and praying and learning and loving 
and having children and raising children and rescuing animals and acting on behalf of the future because hope lives in the space of what we don't yet know. Hope lives in the space of what we don't yet know. And we are here because of the audacious dreams dreamt by those who came before us. And all those ancestors whose bravery and resourcefulness and resilience led to us being here today against the backdrop of heartbreak. Let's act in this new year as if we are the inheritors of that bravery and resourcefulness and resilience because we are. And may we be the ancestors that our great-grandchildren will look back and thank. Shana Tova, everybody. You can hold my hand when you need to let go. I can be a mountain when you're feeling valley low. I can be your street light showing you the way home. You can hold my hand when you need to let go. Want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone? Let's take on the world while we're young and enable and bring us back together when the day is done. If we want a